Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about craft tables and creativity. Todd Oldham, my guest today, is hard to define. In the 80s and 90s, he was a well-known fashion designer, but he also has designed furniture, interiors, and products. He had a segment on MTV's House of Style in the early 90s and then hosted his own show on MTV in 1999. He was the creative director for Old Navy and designed lines for Target and Lazy Boy. But today, Todd is perhaps best known for the books he's worked on. In 2007, he published a beautiful, uh, massive monograph on the artist and illustrator Charlie Harper and has continued putting out books on subjects ranging from designer Alexander Gerard to the interior design magazine Nest to people like John Waters and Joan Jett. I have a very distinct memory of discovering Todd's work. I saw his Lazy Boy collection in 2003 as a 13 or 14 year old uh, who was interested in interior design and furniture design and really loved what he was doing there. And it's been really fascinating and, and weird, frankly, to grow up and find his work still fascinating to me, especially as he's become someone really interested in recovering these historical figures who have also meant a lot to me and my work. And so this is a really special conversation for me. It's a wide ranging and really inspiring conversation about what it means to be a person who makes things and puts them out into the world. We talk about Todd's childhood and how he was instilled at a very early age about valuing creativity. We talk about his time in the fashion world and how that's influenced this sort of second career he's had as a publisher, as a writer, as a historian. And we, of course, talk about those books and his process from research to writing to the role of design history and why he's continually drawn to these multidisciplinary figures. If you like this show, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for superfans. All of those tiers give you access to all sorts of bonus content like monthly newsletters, early episodes, transcripts, and exclusive bonus interviews, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like Scratching the Surface, if you want to see it continue, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to help support the show. As always, thank you so much for your support and for listening. And here is me with Todd Oldham. following your work for half my life about um, uh, I before I was a graphic designer I was really interested in architecture and interior design and furniture and so when I was uh, 13 or 14 years old somehow I came across an advertisement for your lazy boy collection in 2013 yes, yes. Uh -huh. um, I had never heard of you before I did not know about the fashion work I did not know about you know, the MTV stuff, I was like, I had just missed that. I was a little bit too young for that. But this, I saw this ad for this Lazy Boy collection and was like, this stuff is cool. This guy looks cool. Uh, I, I remember, I very distinctly remember visiting my grandparents in Indiana and there was a Lazy Boy kind of a couple <laughs> miles there. And I asked my dad to take me there. And so my dad and I went into this Lazy Boy and he's like oh in there with his, you know, 13 year old son who's just like <laughs> looking at this furniture. Um, and, and so, so I tell you all of that because I, I get the sense that your childhood was similar and that you were kind of interested in making things, interested in design, interesting, interested in art, kind of this, you know, weird kid who had these very 
kind of clear interests. And I, I've heard you talk before about the kind of family craft table. And so I want to start this conversation just kind of talking about that childhood and that kind of very early interest in making things and kind of how that helped shape what you would go on to do. Well, certainly. Well, um, thank you for your your kind of enthusiasm <laughs> about my collection. <laughs> Lazy boy, that was that's, I had a lot of fun doing that, and I thought you know there was a lot of opportunities to work with manufacturers, but I've always been intrigued by pure Americana or sleepy mm. things. Like mm-hmm. I did, I did stuff with kids when they were kind of a little more neutral. It was, I don't know. I've always been intrigued by the underdog a little bit, but. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> amazed and delighted that at 13 you you sought it out. But uh, thank you. Um, yes. Before but, I mean, it's it's very possible you were like the first designer that I got interested in because uh, you know because this this is pre graphic design even, and that's when I really started to kind of go deep on a lot of these things. But um, yeah, that was that was a long time ago. <laughs> it's funny to me that that you also had graphic design because when I was. Um, like eight or nine, when somebody asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I, for some reason, I don't know why, I would say, I want to be a graphic designer. Mm. And I'm not even sure I knew what that was, but, but I knew I wanted to do it. And then I realized I have done it my entire life. So it really is, um, it's so strange the way we come in with our interest. And if people don't stamp them out, they can really bloom through our entire lives. And so can you talk about, about that? And so your parent, I've heard you talk about this many times, your parents were very encouraging of, Oh. making things of the arts of creativity um and and I'd, I'd like to come back to this idea that you you said graphic designer did you have you know as a child growing up did you have definitions for th- that these things could be careers can you just talk about that kind of childhood and then that that evolution into oh this is actually something i could do Yes, yes. Well, we, I, I, I'm incredibly blessed with the, the most lovely parents. My, I adore my mom and dad and still see them every day and talk multiple times. They're just fantastic to me. They're, they're real heroes to me. And I don't, they were a very young family. I, uh, I was born when my parents were 18. And I don't know how they had the graces to keep us together, keep us fed and figure out what to do with their lives along the way. But I, they're very impressive to me, and the fact that they chose, especially at a, you know in the '60s, a time where there was no, they chose a, an unpaved road to go down. So that's the only road I've ever known. And when you don't have any natural urge to subscribe to normal things, it it really is freeing. So I, I just never learned the normal things, and I was brought up kind of in school, like we we were just constantly in school. I don't mean like in a building. But, but we would, like, um, I'm a, a very passionate gardener, and I know it comes from, we would walk around, my mom would point at certain plants, and we would identify them, and over and over. So we were just constantly in this learning situation, and we, we I was brought up in museums, and this was not any, we're not like fancy art people, and I think much of it had to do with it was some of the only air-conditioned buildings in Texas in the summer, uh, but thank God we went. So we, you know, I have I had the the exhibitions memorized at the the Natural History Museum in Fort Worth, and it, it I I realized how peculiar it was, but they just they were unbridled in in just making sure we were exposed and excited and and had saw the joy of making and then also there were many of us i have four brothers and sisters so more more perhaps a workforce than a family at some point but we we added on to our houses so my, my mom and dad had knew how to do just gajillions of things and so they taught us how to do it and then what they 
didn't know that they we learned together and that was the mm. exciting part was to to have those moments where you're like it's uncertain you know what we didn't know where we were going and really kind of I, I realized what seemed normal to me at the time was pretty strange like we picked up and moved to Tehran when I was 12 for four oh, wow. years wow uh, some of the most beautiful moments in my life but you know as an adult I recognized that was both brave and peculiar yeah. Uh, for my parents, my, I mean, can you imagine dragging four children to the Middle East? <laughs> no. And I was the eldest at 12. So it, that's crazy. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly the right words. It's many words to describe that <laughs> wonderful experience, but that's the kind of the, the freedom to just choose and not exactly give a shit what other people think about it is really a, a huge blessing. And one, I'm glad I never learned the too much caring about what people thought about what I did. We, yeah, there's we're very similar. I feel like in in, 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 in this this regard, and my I mean, my parents were the same way. We didn't we didn't move to Tehran, but it was they if they wanted to do something to the house, if they needed something, they made it all. And so I was uh, my sister and I, you know, we were around that from the beginning. Also, I'm I'm curious, you know, because because you, you said you told people you wanted to be a graphic designer, and you're not even sure you knew what that was, and that also resonates with my childhood. <laughs> Because when I kind of discovered graphic design, it was, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was through, you know, album covers and then oh, going yes. on, online and finding blogs and, and all of that. But I had never met a graphic designer before. There were no graphic designers in the town where I grew up. And I'm curious what that was like for you. Did you have models of of no. careers or of jobs? You know what I had? I had boxes. The morning, the things, the food that arrived in our house, all the boxes, if you tip the boxes over and look on the bottom, that's where all the color registration marks were. Uh, yeah. And oh my God, I was hypnotized. I still am. Any kind of anything that's a color chart. <laughs> uh, my, my parents have for many years given me makeup palettes. Like, you know, like for Christmas, you get those extravagant. Yeah. yeah. So beautiful, the most beautiful colors. I, I have, I mean, if you wish to wear makeup, fantastic. I don't, but I love to collect those things because they're the most gorgeous colors. So anytime something's color swatched, color next to each other, just, you know, blindingly good. Oh my God, I got, so I, I forgot your question. I was so excited to talk about color. <laughs> <laughs> like the, 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 the models for, uh, for, for actually like turning this into a, into a career or a job or that, that, that this didn't just have to be, you know, uh, you no, know, it, fun stuff, I guess. You know what I mean? It did, but what, what the bottom of those boxes made me realize there was, there was a whole mechanical substructure to this thing that I that I didn't, that somebody had to think about. So it made me thinking, oh, wait, who, who did that? Who thought about that? And then when I, they, my parents explained to me what those things were and that this mm. color plus this color is that part, <laughs> oh, my God, my mind was blown. <laughs> so I would collect like the, you know, like the supermarket uh, inserts in the paper on the weekends. They yeah. used to be printed so fabulously before digital printing where it was like with dot patterns and stuff. Yeah. I, still, I still have some of that stuff. I mean, just gorgeous I was just fascinated with anything with printing. So I started to learn about fonts and leading and kerning just because it was also fascinating and printing presses and it just kind of tumbled down. This is so funny to me. I have a very distinct memory of being probably three, four, five years old in the grocery store with my mom and noticing that there were two signs next to each other with prices on them. And the, <laughs> the twos, the twos on each of the signs were different. Oh. And, and I was like, why, why do those twos not look the same? And I, you know, years later, was like, oh, that was my first introduction to typography. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Yeah. The thing is, you know, if we, if we're not, like I mentioned a moment ago, if we're not beat down, that we're yeah. encoded with such incredible stuff. I don't know whether you 
refer to it, past, I don't know, whatever your version of how you are, what you are today, it is, there's no denying that we come with very <laughs> special things that can be encouraged or muted. But thankfully, mine were, were, were I don't know, thankfully, thankfully for me, I'm thankful that mine weren't muted. <laughs> yes, I, I think about that every day for, for myself also. I'm curious then, though, how... I mean, for for many years for you, and we're kind of we're jumping around a little bit um, in in kind of your your story. But you know, late '80s into the '90s, you were known publicly primarily as a fashion designer. How how did that? I, I guess I guess the question I'm I'm kind of asking you obviously were always doing all of these other things also, but how did that become? the main thing was that something that kind of just just happened w- was was fashion a bigger interest at the time how did that become kind of the thing that drove everything else well um i'm i'm very grateful for my fashion days and i feel very lucky to have had the version i had because most people have end up kind of tragic or beat up at the end and i i, I was able to wave goodbye happy so I, I have really nice feelings about it all, but it, it was a very crazy, fortuitous ride. Um, I, I like once again my uh, along with my mom and dad, my grandmother, who um, we lost on April Fool Day. I'm not kidding. And if you know her, there's just no more perfect day for her to die than April's Fool Day. But she she was like a north star for me. She was always around my entire life. I mean, literally, we've been we were together constantly and always in touch. I, I spoke to her almost every day of her life. Mm. And she was just magic, a complete wild woman. And I don't know how she did the things she did. She she was kind of the, I guess there's my example of not caring what other people <laughs> think about your choices. And she like, you know, running, she ran a beauty salon, all run, run and owned by women in the, mm. the 50s and did all kinds of crazy things. She was turned out to be very good at marriage, come to find out, having done it many, many times. Um, <laughs> But she, among the things she taught me was how to sew when I was uh, nine. And she, she gave me her old tre, um, tress, trestle machine that you have to, oh, right. you have yeah. to pump with your feet that was then retrofitted at some point by a very untalented electrician that whenever you hit the pedal, you not only received a shock, but it would go about 5,000 miles an hour. And that's what I learned to sew on, which was actually like pre-industrial machine. Um, so she taught me how to sew. And so I would, I mean, was endlessly making something. So I made lots of stuff for my sister, but this was also right alongside making lamps and mm-hmm. gardens. And we, I mean, my, we, my brother and sister, I made a full fort with construction, like, like framing. We made a, so it was all, it was just a part of the things we did, but fashion is very uh, kind of noisy. Right. And, and um, it's one of the few things that does, you know, pretty much everybody responds to it to some degree. Even if you're not interested in it, you you have some response. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was doing things that that were highly irregular to the rest of the market, which caused me to get a lot of attention. And then all kinds of lucky things happen, like uh, um, kind of stumbling into getting to be in uh, Neiman Marcus buying stuff right when Beverly Hills was opening. It kind of exploded and sold out in seconds. So I kind of, as much as I stumble through things most of the time, I kind of got really lucky during fashion days. And then um, I've always had my, my, my mom and I have, and my boyfriend, Tony and I've always been partners in kind of everything we do. And that's been a really nice support system through the years. They, we just understand each other and they kind of, uh, 
I don't know, I, I figured out early on that I, I'm, I'm very, I, it's not that I'm unemployable, but I'm better served with my <laughs> developing my own ideas. Yes, you know? I feel that way also. I know what you mean. Yeah, I, mean, I love being on a team. That's super fun. And, you know, I, I do like all that stuff. So I, I, it's not that I'm disagreeable, but I just prefer yeah. my own projects. Um, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess what I'm curious about, and we kind of were talking about this before we started recording about when you do a lot of different things, uh, how, how that's confusing to people and it's hard to kind of like describe what you were doing and, and that there's, there's an ease in identifying yourself as something and you were known for, you know, many years, a decade at least as a fashion designer, but you were always doing these other things. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering how you pushed up against that. Was that limiting in some way? You know, how, how you were able to kind of think about you know, yes, I'm doing fashion, but I'm also doing all these other things. And that all can be a part of this creative life. Well, um, it was, it was not an option for me to, to, to not do that. So it was very easy to accept the side effects of those choices. And it happened a lot in fashion because they don't, I mean, now highbrow and lowbrow things are a little, are, are, are a little more of the moment. But at that time, that was, a, that paradox was not pleasing mm-hmm. and things like you would, uh, like we were one of the, I was one of the first designers to work with Target after Philippe Stark. And it was, right. uh, I can't believe how much shit I caught for that. <laughs> oh man. I would, but I, th- it just didn't because make sense. It, because it was Target and it wasn't, yeah. It, right. Okay. Yeah. But it, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it was Target at the time. That was the right. trouble. It was just, I mean, obviously Philippe Stark's a genius designer and it was just, the tides were just starting to turn. Now we know that that's a long footprint for them, but um, man, people were not. They thought you had to choose your lane, mm-hmm. but you know there's there's precedent in this happened. It happened to Halston in the '70s with, yep. when he went from couture to pennies. But he got man, I had I had a cakewalk next to him. <laughs> um, but yeah, you it wasn't it, 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 for as much shit as I caught. It was absolutely worth it because I I never. This is the one thing I was told endlessly during fashion, and it broke my heart. Which was I love what you do. I could never afford it, mm-hmm. and I mean I couldn't have afforded it. It was the clothes were completely handmade. They often involved multiple continents, right. re- weeks of handwork. I mean, just insane levels of stuff. Um, so I understand why they were they cost as they did. But yeah, so I got it was nice to start easing and th- making things with price tags that had single digits or two digits in front of it. Right. Um, and I approached everything with the same passion. It's you know a ten thousand dollar gown was the same to me as a back to school lamp for $12. It had to, you know, had all the same tenants to me. You know, it's interesting to, to hear you say that too. And it, it maybe connects to all the work that you've done since that time, which I think, I think all of that was there from the beginning, but it, it's interesting to me how uh, probably to a lot of people, you're known as somebody who makes books and writes books and produces and designs yeah. books. And I'm, I'm kind of curious. There's some, I think there's something very democratic as the book as, as a form, which I can think speaks to this idea of accessibility that you're talking about. Also, I'm kind of curious how you got into to bookmaking and, um, you know, it's interesting to kind of connect it back to, to Lazy Boy, you know, and kind of see your work then. And then I got into graphic design and kind of, you know, uh, kind of lost following your work, but then came back to it when you did the Charlie Harper book, because that was, you know, all the designers that I knew were interested in Charlie Harper. And so it was like, that's kind of then when you came back into, into my orbit. How did that come about? And how did that fashion work, you know, 
actually help shape how you think about making and producing books? Oh, well, you know, how interesting. No one's ever asked me that question before because, you know, there's a real connection to this. I always, always, always said, if you want to get something done, get a fashion designer because <laughs> if you can put on a live fashion show, you could run the government. Mm-hmm. This is one of the hardest things to do. You can't, you cannot believe the complications of that breezy little 15 minute experience is, you know, nine months of work with an army of the most gifted people working on. It's astonishing. So um, I took that same, uh, I don't know, like, like the need to get it. I, 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 I don't think I'm a perfectionist because I love the flaw, but I have mm-hmm. a real drive to get it as perfect as I can. Mm-hmm. And that's books deserve that. Like a typo would put me in the hospital. So it, you know, beyond everything, just in the way of a couture garment, a book is the same. Everything counts. Every, these, these things you're not seeing, the binding, the float, the, the, Mm -hmm. everything, everything, everything counts. Um, So I just, my latest book, which I'm so, so, so proud of uh, is uh, called the best of nest. And it's it's um, homage to my my friend Joe Holtzman, who's one of the most exquisite artists I've ever encountered. And he designed the, designed and made out of the ethers this exquisite art project that ran for many years um, in the late '90s and into the 2000s, where he celebrated design and passion. I, I don't mm. even. I mean, the, the, you have to speak really vaguely when you speak about it because the, it was so disparate in in what they were showing you, but there was this absolute precise thread that ran through it of passion. So it was a, it was a very unique Oculus to, to build something around. Um, but And also um, made by one of the most brilliant designers. Joseph Holtzman is such a good designer. He's right. an interior right. designer, a graphic designer, a topographer. Um, I mean, he's he's just absolutely brilliant. So the fa- I love his generosity to someone that skilled coming to make a magazine to shine lights on people he loved right? and to celebrate. And that, that's something that's always, that's something I was so impressed with Joe. And I think that was one of the inspirations that started um, my book career because I, you know, you can bring something new to this thing. And I started my, I started um, making the rounds through the book publishing world and was really shocked at all the rules Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, it's like, well, but it's a book. It's like, no, well, yes, it is a book. And the colophon page goes on seven. And the, you know, it's like, what? Why? Right. Right. I don't, the, and no one could ever explain to me why. So, well, then that's not a rule. So um, I finally ended up with a, a publisher, a brand new publisher that had just started um, uh, called American Modern. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's called Ammo. And uh, it was it was uh, run by a former group from Tasha and really nice, nice group who I made many, many books with. So they just agreed that all these rules were stupid and unnecessary and let's come up with something new. I love that. I also love, I also love how you describe Nest and this, this like generosity and, you know, kind of sharing, sharing the interests, which is very clearly what you're doing with, with the books that you're making, the Charlie Harper book. Um, I think the Gerard book, the Alexander Gerard book is oh the same gosh, way. And one. I also think it's interesting how all of these people are kind of working in similar modes to how you're working on. They're moving between disciplines. I mean, I've heard you talk about Gerard and you said something to the effect of his sensibility was the same, but the medium shifted. And that oh, that yeah. to me describes your work also. And I'm I'm kind of curious what you 
you know, is, is there something you're trying to do with these books to kind of bring them, I mean, especially someone like Gerard and Charlie Harper and even Nest to a way they're, they're known figures, but they're not, uh, that well known. And so there's some sense of you bringing them back into the public conversation. Is that a goal of yours to kind of, you know, bring these, bring these figures or bring this work to a, to a new generation? And what are you kind of trying to do there? Well, yes, it's amongst the goals, but I, I have to say I have a complete agenda with my books, mm. and that is to bring uh, light and show passions of, of another road or another option. Mm. Because it, with every one of these books, or every book I've ever done is always about another idea about something. Mm. Uh, and when you have the opportunity to celebrate a, someone's life work, I, I, I cannot believe that I've had the these things plop in my lap, the entire life work of, of Charlie Harper or Mr. Gerard or you know, um, even like, you know, Wayne White or, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's astonishing that you get the trust of, and then, I mean, oh my gosh, I, the last thing you want to do is blow that. So <laughs> uh, I'm very, I'm very passionate about every facet of it. And the most important thing when you're doing a book on someone else is that you must be invisible and remain so, because it's not about you. You got to know your place. And if you signed up for it, it's about learning their Rosetta Stone and only making decisions within it. And that's why when you look at Charlie's book or you look at, uh, certainly with Mr. Gerard's book, you see it's, it, in a way, it's as though they did it because oh, I, I, see what you're saying. I think yeah. it represents what the, their many facets. I, we're able to sort out a lifetime in a really interesting way. But what I want you to see, want the viewer to take away, besides being blown away at what humanity can do, is the 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 possibility of following a passion can allow you to eat and have a really fulfilling life, not an unchallenged one, mm-hmm. but but a we're just not often told that, and right. and you can hear me say it, but if I show you, you'll assimilate it differently, and a, a, a beautiful life well lived, like Mr. Gerard, you know, must be celebrated. But once I you know, there, every one of my books has some bizarre story, you know, tum- tumbling into the situation, all, literally all of them, most, several involving ghosts, and I'm not kidding. Um, the, it, I, I, I just tend to do books on things and people I really understand. And right. that, that in a way makes it easier because I can just disappear. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm not, I understand what you're saying and I'm not disagreeing. Um, but I, I do think, I don't know, maybe we can kind of wrestle with this for a second. I do think maybe it's because your work and your approach is so much in dialogue with these people that I feel like all of your books, not, not that you are, not that you are imposing a point of view or that you, you are, are visible, but there's, there's very clearly connections between all of the books that come from your interest points of views kind of you know mm-hmm. philosophy you know what i mean so oh, absolutely I, i'm i'm kind of curious how you think about that of being both invisible but also uh you know shaping in some way that that kind of tension well it's um it, it goes back to what i just mentioned about learning the rosetta stone i i i am very interested in in too much actually and and so once you really can understand somebody and you know, I do. I, I've in the case of Charlie, I spent the last five years of his life with him. Right. Um, I never met Mr. Gerard, but boy, do I feel like I know him. But I know, I know all of his. I know his grandchildren. I know his. You know. So I, I, I know these people. So when I, when you have the blessing of, I mean, imagine 
Mr. Gerard's incredible 60 plus year career of genius. And then you sort it out. Right. So, so uh, that was a wild ride. Uh, uh, and also the, when Mr. Gerard passed in the, uh, he, the estate was unable to find an American institution that could accept it because it was so gigantic. Right. right. And there, there, we, it's shocking and heartbreaking that we have no American institution. So it was deacquisition to the Vitra archive in Wilhelm Rhein mm. uh, outside of Basel. And it was there for over 20 years by the time we went there. So I took um, nine of us went, was it nine? Yeah, nine of us, photographers and scanners for us to open the boxes because they, after 20 years, they had only been able to crack, I think it was like seven or 8% of the boxes. Wow. So we, they allowed us to go in there and we, along with um, the Gerard grandchildren who were are the Muslim Corey uh, and Alessio Gerard, truly angels uh, and open everything and restore what we could and photograph it and get it together. And it was the, it was truly one of the most mind blowing nine days I've I, ever had in my life. Yeah. I can't imagine. I'm so jealous just hearing you talk about this. Oh, it was incredible. And, and I, 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 I'm just, I'm still, I'm kind of st- stuttering just thinking about it because the, we had, I think it was 36, 300, 300,000 documents or something. It was some unbelievable wow. number of documents that had to be sorted um, and then, so I couldn't, I couldn't work on the, 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 um, design and the research was so intense. I couldn't work on the words as well. So I was so lucky that I got to work with Kira Coffey who mm. sculpted all the words in the most graceful vernacular that sort of mirrors a, a bit like the way Gerard's spoke, like, you know, the vernacular changes all the time and yeah, even little yeah. things like, like when one is listing three things, like she was pretty happy and sleepy we would say put an and between the second and third but that that it grammatically was was awkward uh, in like 50s and 60s you would just stack the three words mm. so um, we we there's little teeny nods to grammar oh, from the time um, we like the and all the typework we built was built from uh, this barware that Mr. Gerard had done in the 30s that was exquisite and we were able to rebuild every letter except for two of them which we just guessed what he would do, but I think we did it right. Um, so anyway, it's 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 very, it's it's you have to be, first of all, a big fan of whomever you're working because it's a ridiculous yeah. amount of work. I, yeah. I mean, you, you know, it's oh yeah. my god, yeah. Book, books are not for the faint of heart. Yes, I, I agree with that. I want to come. Ba- I want to come back to the this idea about uh, kind of the design and the writing. But I have another question first, just about the kind of research process. And uh-huh. you've talked. You've I've heard you talk before about kind of the importance of research in your work you you've said that you see yourself you know kind of as much or you think as much like an anthropologist perhaps as a yeah. as a designer and you've you've said you felt feel a kinship with margaret mead i'm kind of curious about your research process when you are you know in that archive with those thousands of documents can you talk a little bit about kind of how you think about sorting through them what is the story you want to tell what how how do you start to put this together um just a little bit about how that influences your work, both for the books, but also just for the more kind of design projects also, which seem very clearly uh, research heavy in, in their process. Oh, they do. Well, like I have to create my own, I kind of live in a, without a lot of guideposts, but for me, without guideposts, I, it's like I float to the ethers. If somebody says, do what you want, that's just poison to me. Because it's <laughs> yeah. like, oh my God. <laughs> I remember one time, uh, 
um, I got a call from Tibor Kalman, who was the mm-hmm. editor at Interview for a time, and he's it was during Fashion Days. He's, he was said, well, do, "Can you do something for us for this one issue?" I said, "Sure." So I, I d- made a painting for him and sent it in. And <laughs> I remember the phone call. It's like, well, we really like the painting, but <laughs> we were expecting a dress. <laughs> right. <laughs> See, if you don't tell me what to do. Um, yeah. So with that in mind, you have to be able to frame things. You got to set up your own. You got to pop pop the four post in for your framing to be able to make decisions within. Otherwise, oh my gosh, if anything's possible, then it is, mm-hmm. and then that's too much. So you know, with 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 books, you just it's really like a heavy research product project that you have to get to the point where you feel it, like you feel like you know it. Mm-hmm. it, it I don't. It's not like you know it. You have to. You have to feel it. And so I have, I have a. I have a process for making books that I've just developed on my own. I suspect it mirrors probably bits and pieces of others. But what I like to do is get all my files together and print them out in little four by six pieces. And then I cut them all up and I put them in envelopes, synergistic envelopes or project envelopes. And then I carry around these envelopes forever. And then I start just making, taping these little pieces together in, in, in strips, sort of, sort of creating chapters or movements or moments. And then I start with my role. My role starts. So I start carrying around this roll of stuff that can be rolled out. Because I, I move around a lot. So I have to be able to roll my role out. And, and what I call, what I, yeah, I call, I call them writing the book. Because you have to, this is the only way that I can assimilate the feeling, the ebb and flow, the breath, and all the necessary pauses that are in a book. I, have, I can't do it digitally. I have to walk up and down the book, uh, staring at it, letting my emotions fall from page to page to get the feeling about about the sequence and books are very much alive and their editing is 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 much akin to a feature film because it, it people can only assimilate so much at one time there's eye breaks there's there i mean there's a there's a million manipulations that can be done in a book to allow the reader to have a lovely experience do you consider yourself a historian when you're working on these books yes i i do without any pedigree um, right. uh, I, I do, but I do know I'm, I am one of the, the probably four Gerard scholars and Harper scholars too, because I, I can know right. everything about those guys. Um, so that, that's that I definitely know I have more information. There's me and Kira and the, and Alayshul and Corey Gerard. They're the four. Something I think about a lot in studying design history, I'm, I'm just kind of curious if you have thoughts on this. This is not something I was thinking that we would be talking about, but kind of hearing you say this, I'm interested. I always, uh, one of the problems I think in graphic design education is, and, and I'm, I'm guilty of this as, as somebody who teaches in, in these programs, to sometimes reduce a lot of this stuff to just the images and, and to not put them in context and kind of think about where they came from and what, you know, what these people were doing. And so I think of someone like Gerard, who was working across all sorts of different things at a very particular time, you know, do we sometimes lose something if we just like look at the work and don't talk about the whole life, the context, the, you know, the systems around it? And I'm kind of curious if you have thoughts on that. Do you ever worry or is it a concern of yours? that people are buying these books just to, to look at um, as, as, as pretty artifacts instead of actually learning from them, like you're talking about, kind of showing this other way? Well, you know, there's that books are assimilated in many ways, and that is unfortunately a way that they are assimilated because I say unfortunately because it's only a piece of the story. 
But in the case of, of Charlie Harper, I think what you just said is absolutely true. I've, the, Charlie's influence on current graphics is undeniable and mm -hmm. sort of outrageous. But what shocked me is the all the just appropriation. Right. You know, I would hear endlessly, did he use Illustrator? It's like, no, <laughs> he was an illustrator. It was, it's a different idea. Yeah. Um, so that that's probably that that book is probably the most influential on society that I, I've ever done. Gerard is very influential too, but he is a rare master that's hard to parse. Like I don't think anybody looks at Gerard and thinks I can do that. Right. You, you know what? You cannot. Right. Right. Um, but um, with Charlie's got a can-do attitude that people can kind of embrace. So, um, yeah, there, there. I, I need to know everything about things to, to fully embrace them. So I, I'm sad when people just just skim it. But if that's the way you get there, maybe it will it will spark something to get you going deeper but but you, you spoke a moment about context and yes the the there's two ways to assimilate it one is through just its visual beauty at this moment but when you realize the levels of daring do that came about um like mentioning gerard gerard's graphic work was just shocking and revolutionary and mangy yeah. to some eyes i mean that the, all those mix of clunky type right. work and right. weird spatial qualities and then they were they and then the sum of parts was just glory you know he could do cheap yeah. little tricks that he produced one document for a store that, that um, he made in 1961 called T&O um, uh, that was in midtown Manhattan. And it was a, a, a store that sold his textile designs for Herman Miller alongside some of his passionate um, collections of folk art. So it was very, mm -hmm. very new. Nothing looked like it. Also, the store looked like a spaceship, <laughs> the ceiling covered in light bulbs. Right. Yeah, so you were here with buying these modern textiles, these ancient head-made clay things in a spaceship. So it it was very beguiling and also known as the place where Herman Miller employees got their discount to okay. go buy things. So it just it, it it just didn't work. But if you that one document for the poster, which is these bands of cutout color in these sort of different scroll and ribbon shapes with different typefaces that he constructed, is still one of the most revolutionary and in influential mm. design documents i think i've ever seen what, you, do you know which one i'm talking about i it sounds i i know the store that you're talking about but i'm not sure i know the document i'll have to you, you would absolutely know it you would know okay. it when you saw it and then you'd be you'd be surprised at how okay how far have a look because it but th that's the one there's very few that you can point to as sort of a ground zero but that one that one poster was wild i i saw i still see it actually it influenced it influences me yeah you you need to know context because it's you know the things I'm always Im impressed with, with uh, daring efforts and mm -hmm. where I, our eyes today are used to noise, a lot of visual noise. Right, right. Um, there was, you have to consider at the time how, or, or also the spareness. Like you look at the, the yeah. Herm Herman Miller ads from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, like with um, when Charles Eames and mm -hmm. Gerard and um, George Nelson were, yeah. were actually modeling in the ads. They were very spare and gorgeous. And like Gerard's invitations for opening up uh, Herman Miller showroom in San Francisco was printed on the, a whisper thin tissue paper, which is like, the, I, I mean, who prints invitations on tissue paper? <laughs> right. this, this is a corporate invitation. Right, so right. He, he, but that makes sense because, you know, Herman Miller and the Miller family has a long history of being brilliantly supportive and daring and strangely conservative at the same time.
Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I could I could talk about like mid-century Herman Miller with you for 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 hours e- easily. The Eames, Gerard, George Nelson is a big hero of mine. Well, Nelson um, was especially great. With the new, have you been to the the archive in Wilhelmine? The, the I have not. No, oh, not oh, yet. You can get over there because they have Nelson's archive too. They have Werner Panton. I know, I know. Yeah, I, it's really I need special. to. I mean, especially for me with Nelson, just his 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 kind of working as a designer across different mediums, but also his work as a writer, I think is really interesting and has influenced, you know, my, my thinking about working, you know, across design and writing, which I I actually connects back to what I wanted to ask you about earlier about the relationship between design and writing for you when you're working Uh, on these books, where does the writing part come in? Because you are, you are writing uh, texts for these books also. Is that something that's happening throughout that process? Is, is writing something that's easy for you? I guess I should, is is that something you enjoy also? I do. I love it. It is very easy for me because it's just, you, my head is like a weird lazy Susan that I can flip around to whatever part of the lazy (laughs) Susan I need to operate. And so when it gets to writing, which is not something I get to do very often, I kind of, I kind of like constructing the sentences like painting, you know, it's, I don't write like it's not just sequence of letters to me. I see them. I don't have synesthesia, but it's there's something more lyrical and more beautiful about the. I know that. what you mean. Do yeah. You, yeah, it's hard to. Yeah, hard to I've, I, I, I've talked to people before about how I, I, as someone who's not trained as a writer but does a lot of writing now as, as as part of my work, I think of my writing as a form of design. I'm thinking about it structurally, visually. Uh, how the sentences kind of flow between, like all the language that I use to describe design is also what I'm thinking about when I'm putting together a text. It, well, it's kind of all, you know, when you have that head, it's all the same. It's, yeah. it's you know, and, and I guess it goes back to your point that you made a moment ago about the designer, all, all the artists I've made books on, it's the same thing. They just have their, what they have, and then they ha- they're also missing any sort of fright to do something new. And so if you, that's, a, that's kind of the perfect combination is to, you know, to have enough knowledge, be sophisticated enough to, to know it, and then be unafraid to jump in. I've heard you talk before about your interest is in process over outcome. And I, I think that very much speaks to this whole conversation. And I'm kind of curious how you think about, about the outcome itself, though. You know, like are, when you are starting projects, are they process first? And then you think, hey, this is a book. This is this is a chair. This is a interior, <laughs> or or like, how do you actually start to think about where all of this research, all of this thinking, all of this making, when it actually sh- starts to become a thing? Well, it usually happens just because it. it um, one of my favorite films is Anti Mame, and there's that great line about mm. knowledge being power, mm-hmm. and it always that stuck to me very early on. So there is no, there is no downside or no limit to how advantageous it is to having information and so just the more you can suck it in so when i feel like when i have as much as possible then i can construct something new because i don't want to i wouldn't want to look at a chair and think i can make a chair you know i'd be much more interested in a cloud formation or a new plant structure or you know etruscan vase handles um uh so i have i prefer a non-traditional cross-pollination which would have probably got me in so much trouble during my fashion days I mean, I feel, I'm glad I can't, I can't get uh, canceled from st- stuff I did 30 years ago. <laughs> but uh, I, because when we moved to Iran, I remember looking out the windows and going, wait, where's the lines? 
Oh, and yeah. It, it was like, what, what? why are we pretending that there's lines? It's all one thing. It's right. just so clearly from the air, it was all one thing. Right. So that, well, that, like, that really shook me. I remember very, very strongly under that understanding. So with that in mind, I thought, oh, everything can go together. And so between right. that and then seeing this Three Stooges episode I saw as a kid called Slippery Silks. Have you ever seen that one? I don't think so. Oh, oh my God. It's still so good. Every time I watch it, I can't stop. It's okay. the, they were they were plumbers and they got hired to they went to this lady's house who had hired them to put on a fashion show but they were plumbers so they went ahead and did it so they did a whole fashion show that was made out of furniture and it blew oh, my mind it blew i my mind. i know that i haven't seen this one but i know which one you're talking about well, i saw it when i was six and my mind melted <laughs> and i thought that it just was like that oh <laughs> right every oh, i get it now it's like now right. I, this this three students have made me think i get it so uh, it that's the thing that stuck with me which is this that you can do anything you know every yeah. as long as you have information and a warmth and a, and a passion for it then you can do anything it doesn't mean that it's not going to be good always but if you're stuck if you're attached to the pathway and the making and the, the buoyancy and the percolation in your body that you feel when you're creating yeah. that's all that counts right because um, often in commerce too it's turned over to the other entities it's in the store it's in 3,000 stores well it sold great or it didn't sell that doesn't mean your design was any more or less it's just a result of things so uh, it, as a designer I think that's one of the best parts of or uh, I can imp- information I can impart to people is just to not get attached to the outcome because it's so rarely in your control and it often misrepresents uh, the actual outcome right right yeah I love that I I completely agree with that and speaking of speaking of of, of outcomes and and kind of this idea of designing anything What's next for you? I mean, anything that you can talk about. What are things that yeah. you're thinking about now or what are projects you're working on or, or even what are forms or mediums that you're kind of interested in working in next? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm continuing down my book, book mode and um, I'm working currently on a book on Alexander Girard's photography. It's no surprise mm, he's a right. brilliant, brilliant photographer as well. Um, I'm also uh, working on a, a garden book I'm really excited about. But about mm. 10 years ago, I kind of got this strange feeling to be, I'm not saying more purposeful, but I really thought, how can I help? So mm. I wanted to try, we, because of the way I was raised and you know, raised with sort of without a TV in the living, but a craft table, it just, there was just so much good that came out of that and the conversation and the ease. And I, I know like the way, the way conversation changes when your hands are busy, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there was just so much good in that. I thought, how can I translate all this stuff I know and what my parents taught me? So we started coming up with fun, um, ideas for kids. So I, I made a, a book um, on kids, um, you know, activities and kind of focused it there. And then we started doing a lot of crafts. But I'm super excited because in the next couple of weeks, we launch a, a gigantic new arts and crafts collaboration with Walmart called Smarts and Crafts. Mm. And I'm so excited about it because Walmart has, has incredible reach and they've been very, very interested in trying to help bring joy to families and um, it's just been a real, real pleasure working with them. So um, there'll be a very large online component. We've been the last month producing many, many stop animation videos. And it's a very exciting thing that launches in just a couple of weeks called Smarts and Crafts. Oh, that's great. I love that. I love the Gerard photography book, too. That's such a great idea. Oh, well, and you know what? There's 65 
hundred images that are <laughs> in course. the archive at, yeah, not kidding, in Santa Fe Folk Art Museum where they have a big collection of, of his stuff too. So uh, we're working on a, getting a grant to have them scanned. And yeah, I've, I've seen a, about 500 of them and they're mind blowing. Oh yeah, I can't his wait friend, for that. They're incredible. His, he hung out with George O'Keefe and Nelson, mm -hmm. all those people that you admired. But I mean, George O'Keefe like bust in the gut laughing. We don't see that yeah. usually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's a new look. Um, my my last question, and this is the question I used to end all of these episodes. I'm curious what you're reading right now. Oh my gosh. Well, let's see. I am one of those. Uh, I'll have several things going. I had a feeling. That doesn't yeah, surprise yeah, me, Todd. Right? You know what? I was, the, I'll was. i just tell you the... I don't know how to answer it exactly, but I'll tell you the last book I opened. And it was a, it's an uh, Andy Warhol catalog from a Swiss show in 1962. And it's a remarkable catalog. And it's an incredible zenith of design because it's printed on kind of newsprint. It's very mm. kind of crappy. It looks like it was maybe like made at a catalog company. It looks like the Sears catalog. Right, so. right. Um, but wow, and the most daring, awkward graphics. And, you know, I have a, a really big library. Too much now. Yeah, I had yeah. a feeling that that's why I was excited to ask you this question. Well, that was literally the last book I picked up. But if you know, if you ask me in a few hours, it'll be another answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. That that sounds exactly right. Um, Todd, this was such a wonderful conversation. I mean, as I as I said at the beginning, your work has inspired and influenced me for for many years. And this was such a such a joy to talk to you about all of this. Thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I had such a nice time speaking with you. And um, yeah, I, I I appreciate your interest. I think we have a lot. Of fun. This episode was recorded on April 7th, 2021. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.